welcome to Standing Up. In this episode, I interviewed Derek Rose. Derek Rose is an activist, journalist, an anarchist. And when you think anarchist, uh, and if you think of violence, that's not what we mean by anarchist, uh, but he will explain that in the show. We had a great conversation about 5G and how it's being rolled out, about uh, technology and how the government is having more and more control over people's everyday lives. Um, he really does tremendous work and is a powerhouse of an activist. He's written uh, four books now and released one documentary. Uh, links to those in the description. I have his third book here, which made it all the way to Israel. It's a brilliant book that shows how to achieve uh, anarchist society uh, in a compassionate way, which is something I think not many uh, anarchists and libertarians focus on. So it's uh, his his vision is definitely. Um, a breath of fresh air when it when it comes to you know these ideas uh the work he's doing is amazing and i'm really excited to share this episode with you i think it's a great one that's it enjoy and we're live welcome derek great to have you here thanks for having me on brother so before we get started i want to ask you what i think everybody else is thinking your hair what the hell's the secret <laughs> you know, it's funny over the years, I've probably had more questions and comments on my hair than my work. But, uh, you know, I, I guess it just, uh, it, it's there, right? I, I either pull it back or I shave it off one way or the, the other people have questions about it. But, right. uh, you know, right. just while we're on that, that topic, which is kind of, you know, a funny and you know, silly topic, but just to be, uh, you know, just, I guess, clear about it. For me, as a Native American, as an indigenous person and somebody whose ancestors you know, were forcibly had their heads shaved and their language stolen and customs stolen. Uh, it is something that as I've gotten closer to my traditions and learning more about them and spending more time in ceremony that I consciously made a decision three years ago to shave my head to sort of let go of a bunch of memories and, you know, just kind of purge sort of, and then uh, been just growing my hair out since then. So I, I really don't have any plans to cut it. And part of it is, yeah, because I, you know, I recognize that my, uh, you know, ancestors, my elders from the past weren't able to have that ability. Wow. Well, that's beautiful. I actually didn't think uh, me asking that question would lead to such a beautiful and inspiring story. And on a personal note, I mean, I'm quite jealous because uh, my nature didn't allow me to have hair like that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, great. Um, so we're going to talk about many topics, one of them being anarchism. Now, our our the words we use when um talking politics seriously lack precision i think this is where a lot of our confusion comes from and i think there's few words that are that lack precision more than the word anarchism when people hear anarchist they think chaos and people riding in the streets burning tires but that's not quite what it is so would you mind clarifying and explaining what anarchism is Sure. So, I mean, there's a couple, like you said, definitely the words we use matter and there's a, you know, a tendency to, to not be so precise with the way we explain things and <clears throat> in the mainstream culture. And I think this is probably globally, not just in the, the U.S. or in Israel where we're at, 
anytime somebody hears the word anarchism, it's something, it's really the, a synonym for violence or for chaos. And, uh, you know, it's like the purge to anarchy and it's movies of chaos and people killing each other in the streets and things like that. So that's the message. And honestly, anytime you see it on a television show or anything like that, that's typically the, uh, the context that they're trying to use it. But that's not really accurate to the historical definition uh, which comes from the political philosophy of anarchism, which is several hundred years old and years old, and just like many philosophies, has different branches and different schools of thoughts and things like that. But at the heart of it, what we call anarchism and which some people call voluntarism, is essentially the idea that you believe that you own yourself, you own you know your your body, your physical being, uh, your you know your thoughts and the uh, creations of your own time and your labor, and that it is immoral, wrong, unethical to. Uh, use force and violence against other free people, right? So if you own your body and your, uh, you know, yourself, then it is wrong, immoral, unethical, impractical for me to use violence, force, or coercion to try to force you to live the way I want, right? We can have a dialogue, we can have a conversation and try to come to an understanding and maybe even compromise. But at the end of the day, anarchism is essentially, you know, comes for me, it comes down to that idea of self-ownership. And then from there, different principles and ideas spring from that. But I think that's really what it comes down to is recognizing that there should be no higher authority other than you as the individual. It doesn't mean that we're all going to be individual, you know, atoms and we can't collaborate, we can't cooperate and, you know, we can't come together for mutual goals and mutual benefit. But it does mean that no other individual or institution, be that government, um, church, uh, you know, politics in general or king or whatever, should have the authority over another human being. Great. So I, I actually consider myself an anarchist at heart. Um, in practice, um, I do have certain concerns, and I think most of them come down to human nature. I, I think that, you know, certain hierarchical structures, um, they're natural, right? We, we created them because they were an efficient way to govern. And it seems to me and I, I hope I'm wrong in my assumption, but it seems to me that let's say we we take out there, we we find a way to live without government. It seems like it's only a matter of time before that power vacuum is filled. And the power vacuum is essentially just being able to benefit by applying force. So the government doesn't exist. They can't apply force. But what can stop like Amazon or Google from buying soldiers and doing what they want to do to get their way? Yeah, I think these are legitimate concerns. And um, well, let me answer that a couple ways. For one, I'll say the typical snarky sort of anarchist response would be something along the lines of, well, if you, you know, don't believe people are, uh, you know, if you think people are capable of violence and, and tend towards, you know, that power vacuum and towards using might is right, well, then how can you say, you know, not saying that this is what you're saying, but how could someone say, well, then we need a government made up of those same people, right? right? And I think right. there's truth to that. But at the same time, it's a little simplistic of an argument to just kind of throw that out there and like assume that that answers all the questions, right? Because right. like you said, maybe throughout the generations, there have been some hierarchies that have formed in a natural way and that because they're, um, you know, they just work out that way. I, and, and some anarchists out there, depending on, again, the school of thought would say they're against all hierarchies and that hierarchy goes against uh, anarchism itself. Um, other anarchists I, I know, and I think I would probably put myself more in this camp, would say that 
if a hierarchy is voluntary and if individuals all consent to be a part of that, maybe that's like a workplace, right? Not everybody right. can can be the boss. There are some some uh, workplaces that are co-ops, right? And they work where people are more equal of fashion. Other times there are the boss, you know, employee structure. And perhaps for those institutions in those specific cases, it works best, right? And, and so there are times where um, decentralization, I think, is going to be the preferred method. And then there's other times where maybe having more of a boss employee relationship, uh, you know, or, or some sort of hierarchical race relationship might um, be better. So I think that's important to acknowledge. And the other thing I want to say is that these conversations do need to happen both between anarchists and non-anarchists to figure these ideas out. Because the fact of the matter is that people all around the world are looking for solutions, whether that means, okay, they think they can reform government by voting, or they think, you know, overthrowing the government with violence and, and things like that is the answer or just simply opting out and pulling ourselves out of the system. At the end of the day, many of us recognize that things aren't working as they, you know, as they, we, perhaps we think they should be, and uh, they're not working efficiently. Of course, we, many of us diverge when it comes to what we believe are the solutions to these problems, right? But um, I can say that in the last year, I've made a very conscious effort to, you know, get out of the anarchist bubble, I guess you could say. And um, not because I have given up any of my anarchist values. In fact, it's because of those values that I felt like I need to stop preaching to the choir and talking to people who already get this. And I need to go outwards. And, you know, that was one of the reasons I know we're going to talk about this. One of the reasons I ran uh, for mayor in Houston, where I live, because I wanted to make a conscious effort to reach people who aren't going to be at anarchist conferences, who aren't going to be on YouTube searching for this kind of content because they just haven't come across it. These are just regular people who are like, my house is flooding and I need somebody to help with that. And so because nobody is stepping up, well, not always, but let's say because they don't know that there are people in the community, anarchists and voluntarists and just activists who are stepping up and trying to offer support, their first thought is, okay, well, the government must be the person I go to for help, right? And if we say the anarchists believe that a world without government is possible, but we do nothing to show people that, then the ideas are never going to advance. You know what I mean? You can write books and you can write essays and right. talks and say, well, we're going to do these things and it's possible without government. But when people look around, that's not what they see. So we they, they can only learn by what they experience, right? And so the average person is going to say, well, my house flooded or, um, you know, one lady I talked to, she said her son had been hit by a bus and he, was, he got killed by a school bus. And, you know, she wow. was like, why isn't the, the city or the school district helping me out? And I don't even know if that's the role of the government, but I could sit there and empathize with her and say, look, here's a human being who has a very realistic, pro tangible problem, and she's looking for help. And so as anarchists or as people who might not necessarily want to support or be a part of the system, if we're not taking concrete steps to show people that this world is possible, then I, I do think it will be difficult for people to uh, to ever come to, to terms and to think it's possible. And that power vacuum you talk about is a very real issue as well, because um, I mean, I've, and I think I've shared this with you in past interviews. I've, I've been, I was in prison 15 years ago when I was 20 years old, I got locked up for my own kind of going through things. And I met people there who generally do not give a crap about the rest of the world. You know, they're yeah. sort of, I'll say they're locked in their own trauma and whether that means they, their trauma has led them to breaking into people's houses or committing acts of violence or stealing or whatever it may be, that's just where they are. And, you know, you can try to talk to them and have a philosophical conversation about, you know, empowering the world and bettering the world. And that's just not where they are. So let's imagine a world without government and you have individuals like that. Those people probably would try to step into that power vacuum and 
um, you know, gain some power. But even without that, you mentioned Amazon and some of those companies, we're already in a situation where those companies, like for example, Facebook, not many people know, but they have their own private police force that guards their whole headquarters. And I'm sure Amazon can afford to do the same. These companies, these corporations are so large and so powerful that they can afford to hire Blackwater or other mercenary, you know, private soldier groups to defend their property, to uh, pretty much enact their will. And I don't believe that in the absence of a government, those companies are just going to disappear, right? So as for me as an anarchist, I think we can't really talk about moving the ball forward in that direction without also addressing the fact that corporate power already exists that, you know, does have the power to be the private armies of the future. Um, and I don't know, I think, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot to pull out from there, but I do think it's important for anarchists, one, to get out of the bubble, to start talking to people um, that are just, you know, regular people and, and hear what their concerns are and meet them there. Because if we're ever going to change the image of what it means to be an anarchist, it's only going to happen by engaging with the average person. Great. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. I think uh, you made some very good points. And I, I, I think most importantly, the fact that you're uh, stepping out of your echo chamber and trying to reach uh, new people because activists often get caught within their own bubble. And it's, there's kind of like this feedback loop. You, you get positive reinforcement from people who already agree with you. So it's just natural to preach to the, the choir. You know, we will write an article or make a video that speaks um, to our audience, they'll share it. It seems like we're doing well, we're reaching a lot of people, but are we actually changing minds? So I think changing minds is essential. And, um, you know, I, I think it's great that you decided to step out of that bubble. I'm, I'm assuming you got some uh, flack for running for mayor. Probably some anarchists said, how can you run for office if you're an anarchist? Uh, yeah, you know, there is definitely more than a few um, colleagues, I guess you could say, and, and in some cases, former allies who uh, who disowned me for choosing to take that path and even friends who I've known. And even, you know, my partner uh, who I've been with for three years was like, what? What are you talking about? You're going to run for mayor. Um, but uh, it, it was, you know, my, my I wasn't running for mayor because I wanted to, you know, become the mayor. Honestly, I was kind of terrified once people started once we started growing and, and we were reaching a lot of people, we were reaching old, you know, young, black, white, brown, gay, straight, trans. We were in the poor communities. We were in the rich communities. We were in the retirement homes. We were in the high schools. And everywhere I went, people were resonating and they were listening to the ideas. And uh, that didn't necessarily translate to a whole bunch of votes, which wasn't really my goal in the beginning. Um, so I never really went into this thinking I'm going to become mayor. Um, and that's one of the things I tried to explain to my anarchist friends is, again, like, look, you can stay in your bubbles and just go to anarchist conferences and talk to other anarchists in your anarchist Facebook groups. And like you said, just preach to the choir and put out your content for that sort of in group. But that's never been my goal. You know, when I started getting into this stuff 10 years ago and um, when I first started waking up in 2009 and then started an activist group in 2010, the goal was always how can I reach more people? So whether that meant going out to a public event and passing out flyers or you know, doing protests or rallies or marches or putting out YouTube content, the goal was always expanding the, the movement, you know, and reaching more people. And to me, that's exactly what I saw the mayoral race as. So I didn't go into it with any sort of, all right, this is going to be the launching of my political career and I'm ready to you know, become this politician. Um, in fact, I had to really swallow a bunch of BS to do it because there's so much about the process, which is just goes against everything I believe, you know, and it's also very much stacked against people like myself, 
who want to do something different. I was facing uh, censorship from the local media. Um, I was facing, you know, just just funny games from local groups who, you know, they had they had about 20, 25 different debates where I was able to actually be on stage with the current mayor and uh, the other candidates. And that was one of my main goals is I wanted to be on stage to call them out directly because I've spent the last couple of years going, well, the last eight or nine years going to city council for a number of different issues. And again, not because I think they're going to listen to me and because they're going to all of a sudden, you know, do what I think is is, uh, is appropriate and listen to the people. But because I know it's a recruiting tool, I can go to city council, <clears throat> excuse me, I can go to city council, speak at city council, and then I can rip the video from the city's website where nobody's ever going to see it. And I can throw it on YouTube and it gets a lot more views. And through that, I've had people re- reach out and uh, be able to sort of recruit more people who are interested. Um, I know we're going to talk about 5G for, you know, for example, I went to, to city council in October 2018, which is the first time I went there to talk about 5G. And for one reason or another, that day when I spoke to the city council, it was a uh, we had a good back and forth and it ended up being a seven or eight minute exchange. That video just sort of took on a life of its own. It has over 900,000 views on YouTube. So people from all around the world saw that video and contacted me and were very supportive and encouraging. So there's things like that, right? Nobody's really paying attention to the city council meeting, but I can take that. I can go there. I can try to inform them, which is usually sort of a futile effort. Um, But at the very least, I can put it on record that I've tried to educate the you know local city council about the issues that I care about and that other people care about. And if they are ignorant or they're, they just don't care, then people can see that. So after doing that for so long, I felt like the only way I could really make sure these issues became a part of the larger conversation was to run for mayor because I knew that if I ran for mayor and if I played their game a little bit, you know, I had to go fill out some paperwork. I had to pay a filing fee of which is crazy. You know, you have to pay $1,500 just to run for office in the first place, right? So if you don't have that money, then, you know, you kind of, it eliminates people from the beginning already, right? Barrier to entry for poor people. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, I was able to do a little bit of crowdfunding and say, okay, well, if I can't generate $1,500 in support, then I probably shouldn't do this. But I did that. I filled out the paperwork and all that stuff already goes against what I believe, like that I should be, you know, having to give the state money and play this whole game. But like I said, I swallowed it because I felt like there was a bigger purpose. And that bigger purpose was to reach people and to talk to people who would have never heard about who I, who I was and what I was talking about. And that was true. I met a lot of different people who are now following my work, who are following my channels and you know my content, who heard about me first because I ran for mayor. And I was able to successfully get on some local media um, despite some of the media blackout and some of the funny games that were going on. And honestly, all it did was just confirm everything I already knew about government, right? That it's corrupt. And I've been telling people for years that, look, if you're going to play politics, if you're going to get involved, you know, don't bother with the, at least in the U.S., it might be different in other places. I I doubt it, but I'm just going to speak from what I know. When it comes to the presidential race over here in the U.S., it's very corrupted. I wouldn't trust it. I wouldn't put my effort or energy into that. Um, I'd never try to run for president. I'd never even bother try to run for state. You know, I think this is about as high an office as I would go because I've always told people, let's focus locally, right? If you're going to play their game, focus locally. But even then I can say, I did it. I ran for office in the fourth largest city in the country and it is corrupt. It is extremely corrupt. There's so many backroom deals going on that I don't even know if that's good advice anymore. You know, maybe in a smaller town, that's not the fourth largest city in the country. You could have more success, but here in Houston, these, there's just, you know, there's a lot of backroom deals. There's a lot of, uh, 
like they say, uh, good old boys networks of people who know each other and have known each other for decades and, you know, run in the same circles and the judges and the mayor and the council, all of them have lunch together and the local media, they all know the, the officials. And so if you're not a part of that club, which I'm very not very much not a part of that club, and I wasn't bringing a message that was friendly to that club, then you're going to face a lot of friction and uh, pushback. But at the same time, I was thankful I did it because I learned a lot. I learned a whole lot about how to communicate this message. And I also was able to show everybody who was paying attention, hey, look how they're treating me. Look at what they're, you know, what they're doing to me just by speaking out, you know, and, and I was actually, I had pushback both locally and from social media, from, you know, of course, Facebook, because during one of the debates, I, 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 said what I think is accurate, that government and uh, media are essentially organized crime. And when I said that at one of the debates, there was sort of a verbal, like a visible like gasp in the room. But there was also applause and cheers and people were like, yeah, yeah, he's right. You know, thank you. And then once we posted that on Facebook, I was banned for a week, which happened two mm-hmm. weeks before the election. So, I, I mean, it, it could you could argue that it affected the outcome of the election. But of course, like, you know, who's, nobody's going to listen to me when I complain about that. Overall, though, I think it was an opportunity to show people, hey, I played the game, I entered that, and um, I don't, you know, I, I think it was a, a valuable learning experience. I'll say that. Yeah, um, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Facebook banning because they seem to have a very, and, and they'll never claim that this is their policy, but they seem to have a strict uh, policy against anti-government content. Um, I believe it was around two years ago when they had that big purging of like 800 Facebook pages. Um, and I followed a lot of those pages. None of them were fake news pages like Facebook claimed. They were just anti-government pages. The only one that I think somehow survived, um, you're either founder or admin of, which is the Mind Unleashed. Um, so it seems, so I, I guess you guys, the Mind Unleashed page is very lucky that they didn't get purged because they definitely fall into the category like the other guys, uh, anti-media and many of these other people that were just years of work, hundreds, thousands of hours of effort erased overnight under the pretense of fake news when it was just anti-government sentiment. So that once that happened, that's when I decided that Facebook is uh, the second I find it an alternative, then I'm going to move and I'm going to promote it and try to, you know, help. Yeah, Facebook. no, he- you're, you, I'm glad you touched on that. Yeah, it was October 2018 as well. That's when, you know, what we refer to as the purge happened. And right. like I said, 500 plus pages deleted the anti-media, the Free Thought Project, many others that had millions and millions of followers and were reaching millions and millions of people. At one point at our height, because I have written for most of these websites and collaborated with them in different ways. And so I've got to know some of the founders and, uh, you know, at, at some of the d- different points, the height of social media, when we were really able to reach people before this, you know, fake news clampdown, we were reaching hundreds of millions of people a week through our articles, through our videos, through our memes and things like that, and really having an effect. And they have truly cut our legs out from under us. And they del- just wholesale deleted the anti-media, deleted the Free Thought Project and plenty of other people labeled us fake news. You know, they took away uh the ability for many of these websites to use Google ads and to use other um, ad sites, which is typically how people make money in order to pay writers and pay people like myself. I'm not the founder of the Mind Unleashed, but I am one of the writers and I'm, I'm friends with all the people involved in there. And yeah, we're sort of like, you know, how are we still around right. is, you know, the question we ask. But I will say just uh, and just, you know, to your audience to kind of be aware, 
I, I don't I think our days are numbered just from being friends with everybody who runs the Mind Unleashed on the back end. I mean, we've just just this morning I got a message that we have three strikes from Facebook now because they're accusing us of uh, fake news, you know, for reporting about the coronavirus and about the simulation that was ran, you know, six weeks before wow. this coronavirus. And and this is factual news. This is, you know, we actually but Facebook because of the whole fake news thing. They have now these six or seven fact checkers, and these fact checkers range from the Associated Press to other outlets, like one is called uh, the Leader News or something, these different outlets that we've never even heard of. We don't know who the people are. I've actually started to do some research and to dig into these people to find out, you know, what sort of shady connections there might be, because, you know, these are supposed to be some impartial fact checkers. And basically, they have the ability to flag you as fake news. Facebook strikes you. And then as a result of that, they can either delete your page or at the very least, they can shadow ban you and make sure nobody's going to see any of your content. So we're at this point where internally we're having this discussion at the Mind Unleashed on how to handle this. You know, there are some people I'll say on the team who really want to kind of, in my view, cower to them and say, okay, let's, you know, let's take that off. Let's not report on these things or let's start, you know, just posting the the positive news because you know the mind unleashed is kind of a mix of spiritual self-empowerment right. self-help type memes and articles as well as we try to do real hard-hitting news as well because most of the people involved in the mind unleashed are the people who were involved in the anti-media were involved in mint press and other outlets that have now since suffered and basically can barely survive and so we've all sort of centered around this last giant page we have on facebook which is the mind unleashed we have nine million followers but we're not reaching I'd say 5% of that audience mm -hmm. uh, because of Facebook algorithms, but it's a very real battle. And, you know, we, I'm of the, I'm more of the argument that, Hey, you know, screw these people. We need to report real news and we need to just keep pushing it. But the reality is that, you know, they, they, they have the ability to delete us at their own whim. And at some point it will happen. And when that happens, I mean, we will lose a very valuable tool and it will be very difficult for us to to reach anybody after that, because this is the last big page that we have access to. Um, many of us have access to. And there's a few others, big ones out there. But I don't think there's people who are trying to take their work as serious and credible. There's some big pages out there that they post things that I wouldn't say are as credible or factual as our team really t makes an effort to do real journalism. Um, but we get flagged by these, you know, Facebook fact checkers and it, you really, we really have no power over it, you know, and this is why I personally am leaving Facebook again this week. I, I recently launched my Facebook page specifically for the mayoral campaign after having left Facebook more than, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, I realized like, Hey, I can't run a campaign for office if I'm not on Facebook. And that's, that's what I hate is they've got us all sucked into these tools and I can't run a business without a Facebook page. I can't run a campaign without a Facebook page. I can't, you know, promote news without a Facebook right. page. So people play the game, but, you know, as we can see, they're in complete control. They are. And I, I, I'd say it's very demoralizing because for for a little bit, I was hopeful that we're breaking, breaking through and, you know, out of the grasp of the mainstream media, which is just corporate media that, you know, their their model is very simple. Is it sensationalist and does it is it in line with the corporate agenda? And that's really, how, you know, how their model goes. And, you know, when you need to follow, follow those specific criteria, there's a lot of truth and important things that are being missed. Um, I thought Facebook and social media in general was a great solution until the crackdown happened. And it's happening on YouTube as well. Uh, I'd, say, I'd say this for the audience, for the viewers and the listeners. 
Uh, first, check out the Mind Unleashed because they're a great page, but also follow them on Telegram. Join their Telegram channel because Telegram is harder to uh, censor, uh, mainly because the founders just don't seem to give a shit. Like they're they're wanted by the Russian government. They're banned in Iran. Uh, they're just doing they're just doing their own thing. So I'd say they don't plan on banning anybody. Uh, and in addition to that, I'm, I still remain hopeful because it seems like there might be some solutions uh, involving blockchain technology. Uh, I, I keep hearing about new social media platforms. Uh, one of them is called Voice. It's going to be built on the EOS platform. I'll leave a link to that in the description as well. Uh, I would, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say Voice is going to be the best one or the one. Uh, it's just one that I'm very familiar with. But I would say that there's many people working on alternative social media networks that are harder to censor. And so while the purge was very demoralizing and the censorship on Facebook and YouTube and Google is demoralizing, I, I do remain hopeful. Uh, Derek, are there any other platforms that you think are worth uh, looking into or checking out? Um, so there are more than a handful that I use outside of Facebook and YouTube that I think are valuable. Um, for social media when it comes to video and posting and things of that sort uh, minds.com is one that i that i use i'm trying to get back to posting on there regularly because i do have somewhat of a following there uh bitshoot is a you know video platform alternative that for the most part doesn't censor people and and you know mess with the algorithms um then there of course there's steam it which has been around for a few years i still post my content on there because there's people who you know are on steam it mm -hmm. um and then the there's websites like DLive, which used to be a part of Steemit, which is kind of a live streaming website. It's become more for gamers, but it's, you know, anybody can use it to live stream on it. And again, it's blockchain based. It's, it's, it's censorship free. And I know some friends who use the, uh, uh, float.app, F-L-O-T-E.app website. I haven't gotten into that. I mean, the thing is there are alternatives. I, I hadn't heard of this voice one, so I appreciate you mentioning that. <laughs> Excuse me. But the, I guess the struggle that I see is that you know, we already have effective tools that do work better than Facebook. I mean, some of them are essentially just like Facebook. You got a wall, you can post things, you can add friends, you can do the groups and the pages and all that stuff, just like like mine is basically right there with it. But the problem is, you know, the people that we want to reach, like, you know, the normies, they're all on Facebook, right? Just the way I see it is that the average person mm -hmm. is going to, they're going to pay attention to the mainstream TV shows, the mainstream movies, they're going to read the mainstream books. They're going to just follow whatever the mainstream tells them, the mainstream trends. And that applies to social networks as well. Like most people, unfortunately, uh, you know, we have to educate them because they're just going to go with what's right in front of them. Google, YouTube, Twitter, you know, Facebook, that's what they know. That's what they hear about. That's what they're going to use. They don't even know that there's alternatives, you know. But uh, there's plenty of reasons besides the censorship, you know, the, just whether just not supporting these companies in general, Google and Facebook, that I think are legitimate reasons why we should be pursuing alternatives. So the alternatives are out there, and I'm sure there will be more like voice and plenty of others that perfect it and get it really, you know, nice and smooth where it's easy for somebody who doesn't because the problem with some of the early ones you pretty you had to know a little bit about blockchain and how to how to right. function steam it mm -hmm. is still not very easy for somebody who doesn't want to remember a blockchain password and all this kind of stuff so you have to make it where a grandma can sign on just like she can sign on facebook and scroll through her family's pictures and things like that yeah so you know i don't know how we do that how we get people to start shifting away from those other platforms but i guess it's just about education and also like you know like you mentioned voice 
when people make new platforms, it's us up to us, the content creators, to support them and to embrace them and to tell people about them. Otherwise, they're just going to sit there. They're going to you know, fall to the wayside because if nobody's using them, they're not going to be able to support themselves. Yep, I, I agree completely. And I think that uh, one way to bring new users on is um, a, a lot of uh, influencers are getting pretty fed up. Uh, I know YouTube is really, they changed their algorithm, which is making a lot of uh, independent news uh, outlets get far less reach. So I think it's good that they're getting fed up because that means they're going to eventually migrate to a different platform. And with them, they can bring um, their users. Uh, but it's true that the user experience just isn't good enough yet. It's like we're in the mid nineties of the internet. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not for the average Joe. I think we're still a few years out, but I think that the progress is happening fast. Um, vo voice is being, uh, built. It's being released. Beta is being released at the end of February and it's being released by block one. They're the founders of the EOS IO software and they raised four and a half billion dollars in a year long, uh, crowd sale. So I imagine they have quite a large marketing budget and I hope that marketing budget can be used to really help people migrate. And, uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. It's interesting to see what, what, uh, what the future holds when it comes to, uh, social media platforms. Um, so you mentioned, uh, earlier that, that you had a video where you went to, ta uh, town council that has 900,000 views. So I'm actually one of those views. I've seen that video. It's awesome. Uh, what, what actually surprised me about that video was that the, the council members actually seemed convinced by what you were saying. They, they didn't disregard what you had to say. They actually seemed concerned. You, you, uh, spoke to them about the concerns of 5g and they seemed concerned. I'm, I'm guessing nothing happened from that, but you know, they tried to push it up the ladder perhaps, but nothing happened, but they actually, as humans, they seem concerned. The system just didn't allow them probably to do anything with it, even had they tried. Do you think that's what happened? Uh, well, you know, there was uh, a couple of council members who were supportive. Uh, unfortunately, they're no longer there. They've just um, term limited out. So mm -hmm. um, I'm actually going back to city council today for the first time now that we have a mostly new council to try to educate them about these same problems and see if I can get a similar positive response. There were several people who were supportive and who were interested in working with me and helping. But ultimately, you know, you said they sent it up the ladder. Up the ladder is the mayor and the mayor is um, in bed with the telecom companies, specifically Verizon and Microsoft. Back in uh, 2018, he, he signed a deal to bring 5G to Houston and to make Houston one of the first test cities for 5G. And, uh, he was given the 5G Wireless Champion Award, which is a silly award they give to various uh, city officials for removing all regulations and restrictions mm -hmm. and roadblocks and basically just getting in bed. I mean, to me, this is a this is a problem that uh, many anarchists talk about, what we refer to as statism. You have the state, in this case, the local governmental body, collaborating with the corporations. You know, some people call it corporatism, statism, but they have this relationship together that completely ignores and um, just invalidates the people, you know, that are supposed to be represented by these uh, politicians and says, all right, well, we're going to do a deal. We want to turn Houston into a smart city. Okay, well, we'll give you a 5G wireless champion award for your efforts and you have a little trophy. And I'm sure there was a lot of um, meetings and things that the public wasn't, uh, wasn't privy to. There was never a vote that was held. There was never any sort of 
environmental impact study or a health study. There wasn't any sort of public discussion comment period. It's just the mayor on his own uh, making these decisions. And again, that was one of the reasons I chose to run for mayor because Houston, particularly uh, in the U.S., has one of the strongest mayoral positions in the country. Uh, one of only two that are set up this way, where the the mayor is basically a dictator. You have a sixteen council, sixteen person council, and then you have the mayor at the head of it. But uh, the sixteen council members have very limited ability to do anything. I mean, they can kind of say yes or no to certain things, but at the end of the day. The mayor has the ability to set the agenda for what they discuss. He has the ability to essentially veto any items that he doesn't like. And any uh, any topic that he doesn't approve of doesn't get placed on the official agenda, which means that if it's not on the official agenda, it can't be discussed or debated and then voted on. So obviously something like 5G, me and other people coming there to talk about that when he's already in bed with the telecom companies, this is something that he basically, you know, if you look at any of the videos, he just looks down. He doesn't, you know, answer. He's playing on his phone. So I started confronting him in public and, you know, going to events. And and like I said, that's what led me to run for mayor because I was getting sick of being told, ding, your time's up or, you know, no comment or just having him literally laugh in my face and run away from me. So uh, but unfortunately, yeah, nothing has changed. You know, I, it's we're still fighting out here to see what we can do. I was at a, a, this other bureaucracy yesterday. I'd never heard of it. It's called the Tower Commission. And apparently this is another seven person body of unelected people that I've never heard of. There's no pictures of them. There's no email, no contact information about who these people are. But they are the people that if you have a tower being built near your, near your home, this is who you complain to. You file an appeal mm. and then they'll bring lawyers from the telecom companies and they'll let you speak. And then they get to decide yes or no, do they deny or approve this permit? And in this case, there was a woman arguing because they're building a 5g tower 35 feet away from her home, uh, which is, you know, I mean, that's right next door. If you can uh, imagine that. So yeah, there's, you know, there's a lot of bureaucracies around that and there's not any real media here in Houston. You know, I, I'm local media. I have a radio show here in Houston and I do my YouTube channel. But as far as, you know, like the television media, I've been on local media a couple of times here and there. But for the most part, there's no real investigative journalism on the local level that is telling the people of Houston, hey, there are hundreds of lawsuits taking place around the U.S. and around the world about 5G. There are health concerns. There are privacy concerns. There's loss of local power concerns. There's corruption going on. There's environmental concerns. Maybe you should be concerned about this, you know, because as you know, the media, they don't necessarily always lie directly. Sometimes it's just about not providing context, right? They don't help people mm -hmm. understand a situation so that they can fully grasp the importance of it. They just kind of casually, okay, well, some people are upset about 5G. Next story, let's move on, right? And I think that's where things are really lost by not providing the context and helping people understand that there is a global movement pushing back against 5G for a number of reasons. That might encourage more people to get involved. Right. But uh, people, people typically, I think, they get involved once they see other people taking action. Right. So, yeah, it, it sounds like it's being rolled out without really asking anybody's opinion about it. Um, and you'd say the main concerns are a health concern private, and privacy concerns. Are these the main concerns with 5G? Um, there's a lot of focus on that. I do think, you know, obviously health is, you know, health is important to us living as just living beings. Right. So that's one major concern. The privacy concerns are huge as well. I interviewed... Um, a lawyer with the American Civil Liberties Union, and they had written a guide called 
how to prevent smart cities from turning into surveillance cities. And it was specifically aimed at, um, you know, the local leadership in cities like Houston, trying to give them on advice on how to pass ordinances or resolutions or just make sure that privacy was being considered. And here in Houston, that's not even a conversation. You know, they, they just kind of act like we're crazy for talking about that. But the fact of the matter is that when 5G is fully rolled out, we're going to be living in what they're calling the Internet of Things, which is basically the, you know, the world of interconnected devices, not just your smartphone and your laptop, but the smart refrigerator and the smart street light and the smart car and the driverless vehicles and the robot assistants and the artificial intelligence, all of those things being interconnected uh, with the, uh, you know, the creation of tens and thousands of new sensors that will be basically, you know, the, the, the future is that if they can put a chip or a sensor into anything, it will be there and everything will be smart, you know, to some degree, which means it also has the ability to listen to you, right. to record you, to, you know, monitor your activity. So this opens the door for a level of corporate surveillance that we've never seen, but also obviously governments right. can easily access those things and built in back doors. So that's another big concern. I think it's a part of the overall push towards a smart grid and uh, what I'm calling the technocratic state. Um, but there also are, I, and this is probably more specific to the U.S., but I think it applies everywhere because from what I've seen, they're using the same model you know, globally. Um, there's a, there's a, it's setting a precedent to take away local power. So in the U.S., you had um, Donald Trump issue an executive order that says that cities have 60 to 90 days to approve new cell sites. So say you're a telecom company and you say, hey, we want to build this tower next to this house. Uh, well, according to this executive order issued by Donald Trump, a city government has up to 90 days to approve it. You know, there's no decision to be made. You basically just have 90 days to approve it. And so it's a, it's a rubber stamp. You can't argue um, against it based on health like that was from the very beginning the 1996 telecommunications act which was written with help from verizon and these companies specifically says that cities can't fight it on health grounds so even if health is one of the major concerns legally if you come to them with health arguments they won't listen which is kind of crazy if you think about that that you can't argue about health um so you know you you, you come to them from that way they're not going to listen um but i think the bigger picture is it's establishing a precedent where the federal government and the state governments and the local governments are stripping away local power. So you have a corporation that is working with the government. Again, this is just straight up statism, corporatism, working with them to say how much you can charge. Because not only is it you have 90 days to approve the towers, but the government can decide how much you can charge. So the federal government's telling local governments, you can't take more than 90 days and you can't charge them more than $200. And the only complaints you can make are based on aesthetics. If you don't like it, we'll make it look like a palm tree, that sort of thing, you know? So it is, I believe it's part of this as well as setting a precedent to strip away local power, not just related to 5G, but let's imagine the next corporation comes in and they say, Hey, well, we want to build something right there. Well, the, the precedent has already been established that the local bodies have no ability to argue against it and can't stop it. So it, I think that we're really going to be at a point where that merger of corporate and state power is just going to become, you know, further entrenched and, and it's going to become uh, backed up with this digital smart grid. And so that's why I'm, I've been referring to it as the technocratic state, because I think it's more emblematic of what we're dealing with, with the techn technologist and the, you know, sort of experts in their fields merging that corporate world with the, with the state. And uh, yeah, I don't think it's going to end up well for, for many of us. Right. Yeah. It's, it, it seems like one of the, one of the issues here is that people agree to 
giving up some level of privacy for comfort. And I don't think anybody would give up all of their privacy for comfort, but we're giving it up incrementally. So a little bit each year. Uh, first, it was, you know, they always say one day that we'll all have chips in us and we'll be walking around with chips, but we already do that. We have a phone in our pocket and that could be tracked. So, um, you know, c comfort seems to be a higher value for most people than privacy. Um, it almost seems like at this rate, with, with the Internet of Things, we'll eventually get to a post-privacy uh, society, which I, I don't even want to know what that looks like. And and I, I think you're you're right. The The issue is not only not having privacy, but it's not having control because, you know, the, the more you could be um, surveilled, the less control you have. I mean, we see this happening in China. Um, we see that now, you know, with their, um, what are they calling it? Their social uh, credit score, yeah, yeah, their social credit, credit score. Yeah. Uh, if you, if you owe money to the bank, then you can't even ride public transportation. And how do they know if you're riding public transportation? face recognition technology. So uh, while the American government grants us and the Israeli government and many Western nations, they do grant us a fair amount more liberty than the Chinese government. It's not a given that it will remain this way. So I think it's a very serious concern. And if, if I'm not mistaken, you uh, have a book being released that is that speaks about this issue. You have a book and a documentary. Are they meant to touch on these issues specifically? Yeah, absolutely. And if everything goes well, uh, they'll be out this Friday. I'm not sure when this will be released, but Friday, January 31st. So maybe by the time you guys are hearing this, it'll be available. Um, the First, the, the documentary, which um, I actually am going to be previewing earlier today, uh, later today. So I'm excited about that. I haven't actually got to see the, you know, the final cut yet, but it's called The 5G Trojan Horse. And uh, I've written this, I wrote the script, I narrated it, I did all the research and it essentially follows everything I kind of laid out for you that it follows my journey from, you know, Hey, I'm a journalist and I've heard over the years about these concerns about cell phones and, uh, EMFs and this sort of technology, but I never seriously looked at it. And then I found out that 5g was rolling out in Houston. So I decided mm -hmm. to start this investigation and here's what I found. And so it talks about me going to city council. It shows me interviewing the different experts that I've interviewed over the last year and a half from uh, Dr. Martin Paul of Washington state university, talking about the health concerns, to the lawyer from the ACLU talking about the privacy concerns, as well as some other interviews. And uh, it talks about me running for mayor and just sort of follows that journey as I learned about 5G and then lay it out, discussing the health, the privacy, the local power, the environmental concerns. And then, of course, looking at the history of corruption of how this whole situation has started um, and looking at this organization called the CTIA which is the Cellular Telephone Internet Association. And it's basically the lobby for you know what people are calling big wireless, the telecom companies. And uh, like I said, it's a history of corruption that goes back 30 years since the very beginning of these institutions. <clears throat> Much like the internet and social media and many of the things we discussed today, these tools, cell phones, you know, they're created with military technology. They're created from you know a background of government and intelligence funding. And I believe that the reason they did get, you know, allow these things out into existence is, like you said, it's a GPS tracker with a bunch of tools that you can use. You know, but that's it's serving the purpose of what it was originally designed for. Um, so we look at that whole history, and then of course I try to provide some solutions. And that documentary will be will be available for free on the Conscious Resistance YouTube channel. It's about an hour and twenty five minutes long. I do think I'm pretty confident in saying that I don't think there's any other documentary that has, uh, you know, uh, dived as deep as we do in this documentary and does it in a credible fashion because you can find plenty of videos out there that are telling you 
uh, 5G is going to fry your brain or it's, you know, for mind control. And, you know, I don't discount anything, but we also don't have the evidence for those things. So I go based on what we do have actual evidence for, uh, what I can prove. And, you know, honestly, what we can prove is scary enough. We don't have to get too far into speculation uh, when it comes to that topic. So, yeah, it's about an hour and 25 minutes. It will be released for free on my YouTube channel and on my website. And uh, I hope people will check that out. And then the book is sort of counterpart to it. The book is called How to Opt Out of the Counter of, of the Technocratic State. And it is, again, this sort of continuation of the solutions and everything we were just discussing here, like you mentioned, China and the social credit system. That's definitely something I touch on in the book, as well as places like India, where every single citizen has now be become subject to their retina scanning, facial recognition scanning program in order to get uh, government benefits. France recently announced they were going to become the first European country to start a an app that people have to use in order to access government services. In order to use the app, you have to scan your face in order to log in. Um, you know, Singapore, Korea, these things are really growing at a quick rate that I don't think many people are, are recognizing. And I absolutely do think that China is the model for the world. Uh, what's going on there, that there are governments like the U.S. and Israel and others that would like to have these kind of controls over their people. Um, so I take it into a very practical state. First, we look at what is the technocracy or what I call the technocracy and uh, the technocratic state and look into the history of that term and that philosophy and kind of break that down. And then I talk about uh, counter-economics and agorism, which I think we've talked about before, which I think is it can sort of lay the foundation for a philosophy of how to avoid these things or how to live in a world uh, without being completely, you know, confined by digital technology, because obviously it's a tool. It's a tool that we can use for good or for bad. Um, I think these tools in the hands of free people, they're about uh, sharing information and um, educating people and growing and mutual aid and all these things. And in the hands of the technocracy and of the corporations and the government, it's about control. It's about monitoring. It's about, um, you know, just uh, social engineering is what it really comes down to. You know, in these days, the governments of the world don't have to put a gun to your head and come into your home to force you to do things. When it comes to social credit, now they're finding more creative and subtle ways. Like you said, if you, uh, you know, if you do the wrong activities, you you might get denied a bank loan. If you're jaywalking, you know, they're going to plaster your face all over everywhere. Uh, if you if you post fake news as they see it, or if you attend a protest or things like this, then your score is going to go down. And if your friends associate with you, their scores are going to go down too. So we're going to end up in a very interesting world of how do we continue to thrive and survive and create freedom and spread this message whenever our friends and family are going to be uh, pressured through social engineering, through social credit to disassociate with us or to, you know, sort of like, well, yeah, I wanted to speak up, but you know what? I really need to make sure I can get this vacation. I need to make sure I can get this loan for my family. I really need to make sure I can travel because over a million people have already been denied the right to travel out of China. You know, and those are their own citizens being denied that right because, you know, they have antisocial behavior. So I started to ask myself, how do we continue to live free in that world? How can we thrive and opt out of that system when there's social credit, facial recognition, biometrics, etc.? And that's what the book focuses on. I really tried to make it a very practical, like, you know, um, just some practical ideas on different situations for those who might want to exit the big cities and go live on a piece of land in a community. I have ideas for that. For those who choose to stay in the cities and in the towns and how you could still try to thrive and, and 
um, empower yourself and educate others and things like that. So that will also be available on my website for a free digital download. There is a paperback version for people who want to uh, buy a copy. But again, both the book and the documentary are expected to be released. If everything goes good, the book's definitely going to be released this Friday, January 31st for download. And if everything goes good over the next couple of days, the documentary will be released on Friday as well. And I'm really excited to share them. I've been working on both of them for the past, well, really for over a year as I've been gathering this information. But uh, the last couple months, we've been fine-tuning it and getting it down to being something that I think can be palatable for a mainstream audience, especially the 5G documentary. Like I said, it's not written for people who, it's not, it wasn't written and narrated for people who kind of know what's going on already, but I think it will teach people uh, who do know about 5G some information as well. But this is the kind of documentary you could show to your mom, your friend, your grandma, somebody who's not into this community and these ideas and may have only heard that 5G is going to help them download things quicker and uh, hopefully educate them about some of the concerns. Awesome. I mean, it sounds like one of the most important books of our era, and I'm very excited to uh, get my hands on it. Uh, this episode will be released after the book is the book and documentary are released, so I will be sure to put a link in the comments for anyone who's interested. Um, so, Derek, before we wrap it up, is there anything you'd want to leave us with? Um, oh, I just want to say thank you for you uh, and what you do, man, and your work and your efforts and. Uh, this last month, I've had the pleasure of talking with um, friends from India, from Australia, uh, folks in other parts of the U.S., and then you know you're, you're over there in Israel, and it's just a, a reaffirmation for me that there are people like us all over the world who are striving to create a better world, and that's what gives me hope, despite all the things that we just discussed and some of the um, you know the hardships that we're we're facing. That there is a lot of beauty going on in the world. There's so much passion. There are a lot of good activists and there are people who are just now starting their journeys, who are just now starting to wake up and question things and looking for solutions. And I'm thankful to everybody who makes an effort to reach somebody, to have a conversation, to pass out a flyer, to record a podcast, to go speak to a council or to, you know, even run for office as futile as it may be, because we have, we're at the point now where we need to try every effort potentially to reach as many people as possible. We need to get out of our little bubbles and our echo chambers and make an effort to reach more people. So I just want to encourage everybody to, you know, to really do that, to get out of your comfort zone and to push yourself to, to, to reach new people in whatever ways are comfortable for you. You know, you don't necessarily have to be the person in front of the camera to make an effort. Maybe you like making art, you can make memes, you can make graphics. You know, there's so many different ways that people can uh, use their skills and their um, talents to, to continue reaching people. So I appreciate you having me on and let me share some of my ideas. My pleasure, brother. You know, we're a global community and only getting uh, bigger by day. So uh, it's been a true pleasure. And um, I'm really looking forward to uh, reading your book and uh, having you on again in the future for sure. Great, man. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, brother. I appreciate it, man. Hey, I'll send you, I'll send you a copy of the book, uh, the, the digital version, at least for now, and we can figure out getting you some physical copies. Okay, cool. Cool. Uh, I, I think last time I ordered it on Amazon. And, yeah, uh, so I'm using a different company. It should be on Amazon eventually, but I, I switched companies because um, the last company I used got bought by Amazon, and I just didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to work with that company anymore. So this one is a little bit more independent, which is kind of a pain in the ass because, you know, it's it's not as easy to get things in the stores. But it did say that they you can usually buy them off like 
Barnes and Noble and Books a Million and that Amazon will pick them up. It just takes maybe a few weeks or so before it to show up on there. So I'll let you know, but I'll definitely send you a digital uh, version so you can check awesome, it out. Awesome, man. I really appreciate it. Um, and I'll definitely promote it once it's uh, live. And um, if, if you know any other activists you think would want to, you know, be on the show, I'd be happy to. Like, if you could connect us, that'd be awesome. You don't need to think of it now, but just in general, you know. Sure, I definitely know a few people. I mean, like I said, Johan and Dave, or Johan's over in India, Dave's. Those are some, hey, I'll let you know, because I definitely know some good people who could use a boost in their, you know, in their work. And just, I'm sure you guys would have some interesting things to talk about. That, that's really why I'm doing this, to give a voice to activists, to get them out there, to try to, you know, bring forth. All right, brother. I think, it, I think the volume, okay, there you go. All right, man. Well, I'll talk to you soon, brother. Thank you, man. Talk soon.